Thank you, Emmanuel, for that uh, glorious introduction, which I jokingly say I richly deserve, but very seldom get. Um, when you hear good things said about you, you're pretty sure you're at your funeral because all the good things have been said about you, but I'm still buying green bananas. I am from India, as you probably guessed. Vizag is my hometown. It was really good to see Brother Nathan on there earlier. Um, we have interacted quite well over the years. He was instrumental in getting me to CBMC's uh, international conference in Belfast. Uh, I have also spoken for CBMC in Taiwan, in Indianapolis, in the U.S., getting ready to do an event for them in Omaha, Nebraska, coming up soon. So my relationship with the organization goes back, uh, what, you, what they do and how they do it. The whole discipleship model of Operation Timothy has impacted me greatly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to add a few components to what uh, has been said. Uh, Dr. Ramesh Richard, your previous speaker, is my spiritual mentor. He's the man who took me on my first mission trip to Haiti in 2005 when I bugged him to ask me to. I wanted to leave the corporate space. I wanted to be like everybody else. I thought pastorate was my call because God had given me some amount of eloquence, and I thought that was my purpose. But Dr. Richard said that uh, in me, he saw a contagious Christian, and I thought that was interesting because I'm a first-generation believer. I was raised in a Brahmin family in Vishakhapatnam, and uh, so I said, how can I be a contagious Christian? I don't know much about the gospel. I'm a baby. And he says, no, what you have is an excitement of spirit. So why don't you go and be a great pre-evangelist? And the reason I share that is much has been said about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. The book of Acts gives us one of the great leadership lessons. But there is another component in there, which is a person who has one verse. His name is Barnabas. What the world needs as we navigate from profit to purpose is encouragement. Uh, it is very easy to find the Paul in our life. These are the wisdom people. These are the great people who have done amazing things. When you look at Ted DeMoss and you look at his quote, keep the main thing the main thing, or you look at Zig Ziglar with his quote, you can have everything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want or uh, any of those people. They can become Paul in our life very easily. And coming from India, the substrata of that culture, we are naturally gravitated towards wisdom. But unfortunately, in our journey towards progressing towards that wisdom, our system is predicated on knowledge. It's all about the next test you take, the next exam you take. And, uh, you know, we have family in India right now where at 98 percentile, this person is having to go to a foreign country to study somewhere. So education is important, but we are predicated on knowledge, whereas the whole gospel is predicated on wisdom. What is the difference? Knowledge is learned, wisdom is lived, said Jack Graham from Prestonwood. But knowledge is learned. We have more knowledge right now than at any other time in human history. In fact, India is the epicenter of knowledge. Knowledge can double every hour, they say. But truth by nature is exclusive. Knowledge is something that can grow constantly. But wisdom is something that is the cumulative use of that knowledge. So knowledge is learned, wisdom is lived. So today in this navigational time in the 45, 50 minutes I have and the interaction thereafter, I want to take you through a system, a system that allows me as a corporate person to be effective in evangelizing, 
to travel the world as a global evangelist, to have a company that is fairly successful, to interact with the best and the brightest in the world. And this is all God's doing. It's God's doing because I have never walked away from the truth. Truth by nature is exclusive. We cannot have multiple truths. We cannot have multiple ideas. And that's why whether it's CBMC or any other organization that manifests that the discipleship model, that what we learn and how we learn it is based on encouragement will always flourish. Truth by nature is exclusive. Truth by nature will prevail. The good guys and good gals will always win. Now, the reason I shared that is I'm not a very good student. Uh, Nathan and some of the others who have heard me, I think Dr. Pearl John is here. Uh, many of you, Rajiv, many of you have heard me before know that I make this claim, especially when I'm in India, that I am that part of the class. I always graduated in that part of the class that made the top half possible, which means my 86-year-old father's board of education would meet my seat of learning every time I brought home a report card. And the report card simply said, why can't you be like their children? Why can't you study like their kids? And it was all based on the identity that Dr. Richard talked about. My father's identity was wrapped up in culture. Hear me carefully, friends. My father's identity was wrapped up in culture. And as a result, he was forcing me to compete to be relevant in culture instead of complete to have joy of existence. In this world that we live in right now, there are 7.85 billion people. Yet God in his infinite wisdom made only one you. And he didn't make one you to compare with everybody else, to compete with everybody else. He wanted you to complete for him. And until you realize that that joy, that inner identity, that awareness does not begin to manifest because when you look in the mirror, see, I know and many of you on this uh, call probably understand Hindi to some degree. I grew up in the South. I speak Telugu, but I married a girl from the North and I probably speak better Hindi than I do Telugu at this point. But in the North, when I first went, they used to say, they, they were saying was, lo kya kahenge, what will people think? Lo kya kahenge. This is something part of India's tradition. What will people think? And what will people think diminishes your identity because I've been looking for these people for the last 30 years and I haven't found them. I haven't found them for the simple reason that they are looking for their own validation. So let's navigate through this process to the best of our ability. And I'm going to try to share a PowerPoint with you. And uh, hopefully it'll come up there. Uh, everybody see the PowerPoint? Okay, it popped up okay? Okay, good. I got a thumbs up. So let's move to the first component, which is what we call the continuum. In the world that I operate in, I operate in a sales world. I come from a selling background. And I'm going to give you corporate principles, but I'm going to give you a theological and a philosophical relevance to them. So selling is not telling. It's a very simple proposal because selling is justifying. It's constantly justifying. And you cannot exist in life if you're justifying your world. Dennis Waitley put it this way. He says, value is in the doer. It's not in the deed. So if you're trying to offer advice to someone, if you're trying to canvas in this life, if you're trying to achieve purpose, see, when purpose is born, you get a glimpse of your potential and that passion will ensue. So when you are, and maybe I'll give you an illustration of this. 
when I first came, when I first came, yeah. Can you just put it in full screen? Because some of sure. us, uh, you know, the, 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 the type is a little small. Uh, there's okay. a small button in the below on full screen or slideshow. Uh, so sorry to interrupt you, but I thought it's better before the anecdote. Yeah, that's okay. it. Click on that slideshow. Go full screen? Uh, it's not yet. Come. Is that better? No, no, not at all. It's got worse. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Okay. Fantastic. Um, like I said, when when I need technical help, I usually call someone else from India. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not very technically adept, like I said. Uh, my dad wanted me to be a doctor, but it didn't work out really well. All right. Um, so the selling and telling component is vital. And thanks for bringing that uh, clarification up. I didn't want people to go through the whole thing struggling. So the justification. When I first came back to India, my father would constantly ask me to not tell people what I did. I said, what do you mean? He said, your brother is an engineer. He sails the high seas. He builds ships or investigates and navigates in that world. And my dad was very proud of my brother's, my brother's accomplishments. But when he would ask me what I did, I would just say that I'm a salesman. And my father would get embarrassed by that. He said, you know, in India, selling is what you did if you were in the medical profession. Everybody had a way in which they glamorized their identity. I would get a business card that says I'm the international director of sales representation for this and that. Why don't you just call yourself a salesman? That's what you do. Till I found out in my identity that the greatest joy I had was in the ability to actually offer a good and service, which means my, tech, my, my experience was worth something. See, without salespeople, all the world has is an excess inventory of unused ideas. So I had to be proud. But Mr. Ziegler, my mentor and hero, who actually led me to Christ, said, when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, your first appointment is with yourself. You have to look in the mirror, and instead of saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, do I have a prayer at all? You say, mirror, mirror on the wall, here I am, what's my call? So when I would come to India and my dad would say, why can't you tell them something, make up some title so they're impressed? I said, dad, that's because you have bragging rights at boring parties. It doesn't fulfill the joy. Hear me carefully, my friends who are watching this. Happiness depends on happenings. It's event-based. But joy is undiluted. It's unadulterated and it's pure. And the only way you will get from to that joy is if you understand the next principle, which is the difference between refusal and rejection. See, in business, when someone refuses you, they are actually giving you permission to go learn a new skill. For example, on this particular call, when I'm done, some of you will like me, some of you will not like me. That's okay. But let's say you sent me an email saying, I came with high expectations, but you did not deliver. Your resume does not match up your output. What you're doing is you're criticizing my skill, giving me permission to go learn something new. I will never give you permission to reject me because rejection is based on the inner circle. My family, my parents, my in-laws, my wife, my son, these are the only people who can reject me. My best friend, if you have not earned the right to be in that inner circle, so some of the people on this call are in my inner circle, I will take their advice. 
because I have worked with them over the years and I realize, again, hear me carefully, there's a difference between a constructive critic and a destructive critic. A destructive critic only points out your faults because they are fault finders. They go through life believing that there is a reward for finding fault. A constructive critic will pare down your faults because they love you so much they want you to rise. The next component in this is no versus no. When someone says no to me, all they're saying is, I don't K-N-O-W enough about you. Unless I believe that, I'm not going to have fun doing the things I like to do. Uh, this morning, I woke up at 4 o'clock. I prepared to come with you guys. I engaged. We did all of those things. But my desire to be part of this group made me go back, do some history. Because it was CBMC, I said, let me know more about what's going on. So if you have this fundamental difference every day, you'll move from profit to purpose. Realize people will refuse you. They can never reject you. When they say N-O, no to you, internalize that they're saying, I don't K-N-O-W know enough about you. Get worthy information and be active. And this is a quantitative formula developed over the years, but ME over T is how you build trust. ME over T simply stands for met expectations over a period of time. If you meet each other's expectation and others' expectation consistently over a period of time, you become trustworthy. So I was sharing with Rajiv earlier that we had originally began our endeavors in 2005, 2006, when we were doing youth events in Bombay, when I was just getting started in my ministry in India. By God's grace, the trajectory has taken a good thing, but I'm so grateful. The reason when he called, I said yes, had nothing to do with my ability. It had to do with my feeling that 15 years later in a different gathering that is more august, more accomplished, he still thought it was worthy. Hear me carefully. I am not giving you one hour or one and a half hours of my Saturday morning. I am robbing, if I look at the number of people on this call and the number of time we have spent, there are 135 people on this call. You multiply 135 times roughly the hour and a half which you will give. That is the amount of productivity I am stealing from planet Earth. You could be doing something else right now rather than listening to me. So make sure you're a time miser and you consistently meet your own expectation and everyone else's expectation over a period of time. So this is the continuum. It allows us to have fun. So let's verbalize some of these components and ask ourselves some questions as to what they actually mean to us. When people ask you, what do you do? How do you answer? I'll give you a few ways in which you can get their attention. For example, the very way you greet people. When someone says, how are you doing? I always say, I'm doing incredible, but I'm going to get better. And they say, do you really feel that way? I said, no, I'm just telling the truth in advance. What they do is they chuckle, they laugh a little, but they realize that you did something different. See, don't do what everybody else does. You know, in the Disney, uh, which is a very big uh, amusement uh, environment in the U.S., and the Sheikh of Dubai eventually said, I want Dubai to be the most visited place on the planet, not Orlando. But Orlando was put on the map with Disney World. But they were put on the map with one statement. Nobody remembers normal. 
If you want to move from profit to purpose and you want to be remembered, which means what is your legacy? If you're just building profit based on what you do and you're doing it so you can leave an inheritance to those that come after you, those that get it are really glad you're dead. <laughs> I know that sounds harsh, but that's what an inheritance is. But make sure what when you look at what do you do, ask yourself. Um, one of the late great people who passed away some years uh, earlier this year was asked this question. He was asked this question by somebody at the start of his career. What do you do? And that person went on to talk about their profession and their call and their worship and their ability and their study. And that elderly gentleman looked at them and said, no, what you're doing is building memories. Make them good ones. Life is a present continuous reality. If you don't, don't have. And now I'm not saying that pain will not come. In fact, I wanted to uh, see if I can get this quote by A.W. A. Tozer, um, which I heard this morning. Whether God can bless a man uh, greatly, it is doubtful whether God can mess, bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply, Dr. A.W. Tozer. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I've gone through a lot of personal pain in the last couple of years, personal pain that I never thought at this season in my life I would have. But you begin to realize that the goal is always on the prize. It's not about you. Uh, life is not a popularity contest. The food you eat on the mountaintop will only be grown in the valley. Nothing grows on the mountaintop. When you're in the depths of despondence, begin to claim the will and the call. And suddenly you'll realize that what you do is making memories, make them good ones. Second, what do others, what do they think you do? This is the false prestige. This is the cars. This is the house. I remember speaking for a group in India. I leave the city out of it. I leave the company out of it. But a gentleman who heard me speak there had a very high position. He was the, he was the big shot there. He was the first person in his entire family who had gone to college. He had achieved something. And as a result of it, everybody who knew him realized he was a rags to riches story. The profit was there. The purpose was missing. As he was verbalizing to himself what his own role in this life was, he began to believe his press clips. Again, major point. If you don't believe your positive press, you would not have to react to your negative press. When people say great things about you, if you believe that's all about you, then when they say bad things about you, you're going to hide. Take it in stride. So when I was speaking to this guy's company, he suddenly felt convicted because that previous night, his daughter had taken one of their nice luxury cars at the age of 14 and gone on a joyride with the full intent of ending her journey. As he, as he was in this meeting where he was the most august person because everybody thought he had accomplished something, there was an inner hurt, an inner ache, an awareness that suddenly came face to face with, hey, what they think I do is very different from what's really going on. He came to me after the meeting and he says, this has nothing to do with what you talked about. It was a secular setting. But will you be able to chat with me and my daughter if we came someplace before you left our town? The girl is 14. She came there and uh, this man has four German cars in his driveway, which means by Indian standards or even global standards, he had achieved everything. 
people thought he was doing the right thing. And he was, as a father, he was trying. But the girl was disillusioned. The father wanted her to go down a quantitative path so that she would be eligible for marriage. He had already determined her purpose. She wanted to be a writer. She wanted to go into psychology. She wanted to write mystery novels. And as I asked her a couple of questions, she opened up and she answered. And believe it or not, she started smiling and she started laughing. The father was curious. He looked at her and he said this. He said, how come you never talk to me, but you talk to this complete stranger? And I'll never forget her words, 14-year-old innocence. She says, this uncle asked me what I want to do. You have already decided what I'm going to be. Foundational difference. What you do versus what you're going to be. And this is why I add these two components. Again, these are sales terminology. But like I said, I use a lot of my corporate training to show people the philosophy of life. I do it backwards. Features still. When you look at the house you have, the car you drive, the car you want to drive, and all of the things, the thrills and the frills that are part of our existence, these are features. Let's say I was conducting a seminar and people said, tell me something about your seminar. Well, it's two days feature. It goes from eight to five feature. We will provide you a workbook feature. We will charge you X amount feature. So and so is the speaker feature. Benefits sell. Tell me a little bit about your seminar. It will transform you from where you are to where you want to be. I'm not in the seminar business. I'm in the transformation business. When you verbalize your purpose, something miraculous begins to happen because you see a greater desire. Now, we heard very clearly about the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. We talked about the Great Commission, but the Great Commandment is love. I tell people within, an, within the confines of an evangelical setting, because if you remember the quote that was put up when I first began, it simply said this, for eight hours of the day, practice the skill that allows you to make a living but for the balance of the time, invest in the will that allows you to make a life. But there's a corollary to that, which I did not add on that or was not added on that. It is this. When skill and will come together for the very first time on God's green earth, you will have unleashed a 24-hour champion. God wants us to work. One of the greatest joys was the Garden of Eden. The reason they were driven out of there, they were supposed to work and, and have that continuity. Work is a privilege. Many parables dealt with work. But most of our work cannot be about the trappings we accomplish. It must be why we do it, not how we do it. Why do we work? Dignity, discipline. But this does not begin with just verbalizing to others. You need to verbalize it to yourself as well. All right? So now let's um, navigate a little further. I want to give you some principles. If you guys are enjoying this, just uh, say something in the chat so it pops up and I know it and then keep your questions ready. Uh, I've got another 20 odd minutes and then we'll navigate from there. I want to talk about a few things. One is called process and transaction. Um, as Brother Emmanuel pointed out, I prepare notes every morning. I run a blank copy of my PowerPoint and I write my notes. So pardon me if I have to. Uh, I still like to old-fashioned write notes. So I've done this presentation before, but process and transaction. One is long-term and one is short-term. Um, my mentor, Mr. Ziegler, I went and asked him, I said, can I do what you're doing? 
Can I go from a telemarketer to being a corporate speaker? Can I speak on those large platforms that you're speaking on where I'm just at the back of the room selling books and tapes? What was I asking for? I was asking for a new identity that was based on the expectation of where I wanted to be. He gave me a blank sheet of paper. He said, sign it. I said, sign a blank sheet of paper. There's nothing on it. He said, yeah, I want to see how serious you are. So I signed the blank sheet of paper. On top of that, he wrote, today I, Krish Dunham, commit to being a 10-year overnight success. Now, I was always taught the short game. Uh, you study this, you get into this college, you get into this college, you get this job, you get this job, you get this opportunity, then you get married, then you have kids, then you buy a house. Uh, and it was all, the progression was linear, it was quantitative, and it was laid out. It was a process. And then along the process would be many transactions that would take place. They would tell you who to marry or if you were foolish enough and you decided that you wanted to try it on your own, whatever the reason. These are process and transaction, life's principles. And here comes a man and gives me a different process. The first thing is he changes. And I said, I can't sign a blank piece of paper. First reaction. And he says, I can't help you if you do not give me permission to challenge every assumption you've ever held dear. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you come with a cultural assumption. You're from a different country. You've chosen a different country. You've chosen a mentor from a different country. You were born a different way. I was raised a different way. But if you want me to mentor you, I have to have permission to challenge every assumption. And the first assumption is you don't need to know the end of the process while still in the middle of the process. Wow, what a light bulb moment. You don't need to know the end of the process while still in the middle of the process. Well, that's how I was raised. My entire life had been mapped out for me. One will be an engineer, the other will be a doctor. Now, the only two things I don't like, blood and sick people. I'll have motivated you, you'd still die. I'd have made a horrible doctor. I remember when my dad put me at the uh, medical entrance test, I ran out of the other room. I didn't want to give the test. I didn't want to be a doctor. But here's the beauty of how God works. Many years later, my dad came to America where I'd been invited by a major pharmaceutical company to speak to a group of doctors in Lufkin, Texas. And my father came with me to that event. And at the end of the event, he saw people asking me questions. There was a surgeon at that event who was making a lot of money. This man had demolished two, 10, 000, two houses and built one 10,000-foot house. Uh, but he had alcohol on his breath. He came to me and he says, I would do anything to have your joy for an hour. And my dad heard that interaction. Here was an esteemed man. My dad wanted me to be like him. But this man was saying, I have come up short. Can I have your joy? That was the night my father, for the very first time in his life, put his hand on my knee as we drove back to Dallas and said, son, there are a lot of doctors. There are a lot of engineers. I want you to fulfill your purpose and be a messenger of hope. You know, when my father met Mr. Ziegler for the first time, he said this. He says, thank you for challenging the assumptions of my son. We are parents and we wanted the best for him. We watered and fertilized him and wanted him to become a big tree. He became, a, we wanted him to be a big tree and we wanted him to be a mighty oak. But he says, we never thought that we would meet a gardener who would change what he bloomed into. We never thought. And I remember Mr. Ziegler saying, I really love your father's words, son. Why don't you go be that gardener for other people? 
And that's what I want you to know. Problem solving is the difference. The, we have a lot of people with a lot of problems. In fact, most people with a problem call Meninger from the Meninger mm -hmm. Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, said when you feel the weight of the world on you and you feel that nervous breakdown coming on, find someone with a bigger problem than yours and get involved in solving their problem. One other person put it this way. Most people with a problem don't want a solution. They want to tell you, you, and you about it. And if the fourth person messes up and solves the problem, they can't tell the same people again. Most people like the attention with having a problem um, when you look at things. So the benefit they receive is the reason. People always ask me, why do you do what you do? And I say, email. They say, what do you mean? I said, five, seven, 10 years down the road, I get an email from someone. Recently, I was on a podcast with a gentleman from Chennai who has got now a doctorate, I think, and he's quite very well established in his field. But he reached out to me and he says, you may not know me. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you came to the institute where I was a first year student studying engineering and you spoke. That was the day I decided I want to do what you do and make a difference. I just want to thank you. His podcast is more successful than my own. His own personal net worth is probably much greater than my own. I had an opportunity when I started a scholarship for a seminary for in, at a seminary for Mr. Ziegler in Chennai. When a young man came up to me and he had a small uh, small box in his hand that had, uh, you know, uh, in India when you go to the sweet store or the savory store, they'll they'll wrap the box in newspaper and. Uh, the, the oil from the goodies within kind of seeps into the newspaper. And when they bring that to you, you kind of know what's in it, but you don't know because you have to open the box, but you know it's got oil in it. And of course, if you're from the South and you've received polarity sweets, that way the ghee seeps out and you can smell it in the heat. It was a lot of, I was looking with anticipation of what this guy had brought me in that little box. But before he did that, he touched my feet and I grabbed him and I said, you, why are you doing this? He said, sir, seven years ago, when the call centers came to my small town in Andhra Pradesh, someone said, he said, I was the breadwinner in my family, but I didn't even speak marginal English. I didn't know what to do. And someone started asking me to go watch your YouTube clip saying, you came from the same area and you teach communication. Sir, I have watched your videos and I've listened to your audios. And as a result of that, I have a job in this call center speaking English a little better than when I started. I said, thank you for that story. <laughs> I love his comment though. He said, sir, if you ever have to cancel a presentation because you don't know, you can't, you can't be there, don't cancel, send my name. I know all your messages by heart and I actually can do your jokes and I can do your inflection and I actually sound like you. What, what a compliment, but here's the principle. Remember when we started, we said you can have everything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. That has to be a philosophy. It cannot be a tactic. You have to do for them because of the benefit they receive, and that's the reason. You cannot do for them because you will get something in return. And what will be versus what is. This is what we call future skill attitude. If you want true purpose in your life, don't worry about what is. The good book says tomorrow will come with its own set of problems. Uh, tomorrow will come with its own set of problems. Don't worry about it. Worry about today. All right. Navigating further. 
let's look at uh, the methodology and then we should be getting pretty close to our exit time where we can interact. So here I'm just going to put all four up so we can navigate freely between, but this is my plan. This is how I plan every single day and I think every one of you is going to get this outline, so don't bother about these things. Write the other notes that impact you, but uh, they'll send it to you as a PDF. My email will be furnished to you if you need to interact with me, please do so. By God's grace, I have managed to get borrowed intelligence, which means I have a lot of mentors who are some of the brightest people who have shaped this planet in the last 100 years. And by God's grace, they have given me access to a lot of their wisdom as a caretaker. Very vital. If you want to move from profit to purpose, become a torchbearer to a legacy that has already succeeded. Make sure the light does not die out. Our goal is never to constantly reinvent the wheel. Someone asked me that question, was it embarrassing being in Mr. Ziegler's shadow for 10 years? I said, no, I, don't, I didn't do very well at school, but I know basic physics and optics. If I'm in the shadow, that means the light is falling on the object. And when the object moved, the light fell on me. I'll never forget the day I got that call. And I'll share that story with you in a bit. But the plan is simple, preparation. This is what you do before. Preparation makes up for lack of talent. I can confidently tell you guys that I'm probably one of the people on this call with the least amount of talent. But I will also probably argue vehemently that I prepare more than most. I woke up this morning at about 4 o'clock, maybe two clicks slide of 4 o'clock. And I prepared from 4 to 5.30 a.m. in the house. I left my house at quarter to 6 and came to my office at around 6.30. All because I wanted to be on the call before anybody else. And you can ask the organizers. They'll tell you that when they let people in, I was already waiting. Why? I was the, I was the person who was supposed to deliver. But that's preparation. Unless you're excited about what you do, Unless you're excited to the degree that others' respect for you is based on what you have already done. Others' respect for you and recognition for you is based on what you have already done. Your respect for yourself is what you're going to do now. So every day when Mr. Ziegler made me sign that piece of paper and I signed yes, he says, make me a promise that from today onwards you will always prepare. I've done about 150 Zoom calls probably during the last, uh, during this lockdown. And I can tell you without any fear of error, I prepared for each one at least for an hour and a half before the call. Here's why. One of these days, it'll be the last call and I want to make sure I gave you my best. But let's say I, it was just another call and I was not effective. And you guys were talking amongst each other when you left. If I had not prepared and you said, I did not like what Krish did, then that's insulting to me because I was not ready. But if I have prepared and you didn't like what I did, then that's just saying you were not good enough, which gives me permission for next thing. Learning is constant. You have always got to be learning. Don't just be on the go, be on the grow. Answering throughout. This is reevaluation. How do you rate? How responsible are you? How approachable are you? How tangible are you? How effective are you? You have to answer these questions throughout. So when, when this COVID lockdown began, I was in the country of Albania. 
On the flight back from London to Dallas, I was thinking, I kept hearing these words, we are in for a new normal. And I said, if I want to be in the effective zone, then I have to now change my vocabulary. So the first thing I did was, I wrote on a sheet of paper, never say new normal. Beneath it I wrote, instead say, old excellence now with a new and improved opportunity. <laughs> old excellence now with a new and improved opportunity. I wrote an article called Virtue in Virtual, which was posted on LinkedIn. But the reason for that is just that. If I want to be excellent in what they're calling a new way of life, I still want to be effective, which means as well, if I woke up at five o'clock before, I have to wake up at four o'clock now. Remember, we're talking about from profit to purpose. You can always make money, folks. That's skill. Uh, even our Lord. Uh, by by tradition, would have had to go in Joseph's workshop at the age of 15. Ed Silvoso wrote a book called Anointed for Business. In that, he said something very profound. He said that the word ascribed, the Greek word ascribed to Jesus was tekton, which means skilled carpenter. If he goes according to Jewish tradition at the age of 15, and his ministry doesn't begin till the age of 30, from the age of 15 to 30, he probably made something with his hands, made some benches, made some chairs, made some stuff with wood. He was a carpenter. The only difference is anytime he picked up a nail, he knew what it meant. But you have to answer yourself throughout. What am I, what am I doing here? What is my call? If you're looking at what you do in life as a job, one person said a job is where the door is locked from the inside. You can open it and do another job. A calling, the door is locked from the outside, which means we are in this now for a purpose. Sybil Stanton said, discipline is not on your back needling you with imperatives. It's at your side encouraging you with incentives. To which I added, the day you make yourself a slave to discipline, the world will become your oyster. Your awareness will begin to change. And the end stands for the next steps. What do you want to do now? I was asked this on a call day before yesterday. What is going to be your story? And I'll go back to the story I told you I would share. Uh, in about the year 2005 or six, Mr. Ziegler had now was reaching the zenith of his career. He was at the height of his popularity. Shortly after that, the Alzheimer's came in. But I had done a program with him at the Georgia Dome, big football stadium. There were going to be 35,000 people in attendance. Former President Jimmy Carter was on the program. Rudy Giuliani was on the program. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell was on the program. This was the who's who, creme de la creme. I did 150 of those events by God's grace, but this was the biggest crowd I'd ever spoken to. That day, Mr. Ziegler decided that he wouldn't fly off early or catch up with me later like we were doing. Both of us were busy. He says, today I'm going to wait for my boy. He has arrived. So the limo was waiting. I finished my seminar. I finished speaking. He had heard me speak. He was quite happy. I went into the car and I embraced him. This is my hero. I had finally achieved my dream. I was the little immigrant kid who came here with $9 in my pocket. I just spoke to 35,000 people at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta and I got a standing ovation. I was completely emotionally erect. I hugged him profusely and I started to cry. I had, could see the light. I said, sir, how can I ever thank you for what you have done for me? 
and I'll never forget the next steps he gave me. He said, son, all I did was open one door, but I trained you so well you ran in looking for light switches. Now go spend the rest of your life flipping other people's light switches. What a profound commandment. Make disciples, flip light switches. But we got to do it with love. We went back to the commission and the commandment. Let's look at that profoundly. The commission is to make disciples of all, and that's why we participate in endeavors, and we want to learn how to do that. And that's effective. That's our calling. But we're also called to love the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I jokingly tell people, if you go out and just evangelize to them and don't love them, you're irritating. <laughs> if you just love them and don't evangelize to them, you're a nonprofit. We have to put both feet on parallel rails. And as a result, we'll realize why both those edicts work. So prepare, learn, answer, and next steps. So here are some common mistakes we make, and this should bring us pretty close. But we introduce irrelevant features in our life. Again, I'm using corporate talk because God knows we can get enough theology around this. But I just want to introduce normal conversation. What are irrelevant features that we introduce? Um, you know, one of the things I tell people is that when you go through life, you will either be mocked for what you believe. You will be rocked because you will believe. Uh, you'll be locked out for having believed. You will be blocked because they don't want to believe. But sometimes what we do is we introduce irrelevant things. People always ask me the question. So you're one of, I don't know, well, maybe I'll give you a story. I like telling stories. I was on a flight from, I think it was Taipei to Hong Kong. And there was a gentleman in the Taipei airport uh, who was constantly looking up at me and then writing some notes, looking up at me and then typing something. And in those days, I had really long hair and uh, I wore those high, when I traveled, I wore a lot of uh, flamboyant, uh, really flashy shirts, the Hawaiian shirts with the long hair and the beard. And then one day I came to India and people thought I was Vijay Malia, so I changed my look. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, I remember uh, sitting in this airport and this guy was typing in his computer after looking up at me. Curiosity killed the cat, got the better of me. So I went up to him and I said, excuse me, sir. I can't help but notice that you type and every so often you look up at me and you type again. He says, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a script writer for Hollywood. And uh, the character in my script called for an eclectical man or a renaissance man. I don't know what word he used. And as I saw you sitting there, you're an unusual chap. Uh, you don't look like the way you dress. I mean, whatever. He, he thought I was a character that he could write about. Well, that got me talking to him. I could have very easily been excited about the fact that someone thought me good enough to put in a script. I looked at him and I said, this is all camouflage. I'm an evangelical Christian. And he looked at me shocked. This is Taiwan. This is Taipei Airport. Two total strangers sitting and he says, I like the way you look. I said, the way I look is camouflage. I'm an evangelical Christian. He says, oh, you don't need to worry about me. I'm a Jew. And I remember telling him, see, don't introduce irrelevant features. What if he said, I'm a Jew and you walked away? because for whatever reason, I immediately said, 
that's fascinating. All my favorite writers are Jews, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, I follow a Jewish carpenter. And a broad smile came on his face. I said, if you don't mind, at least we can engage each other. It'll make the time pass quicker. He said, fine, the flight from there to Hong Kong may be under two hours. While we got on the flight, he looked at some of my adornment, my cross and my Hebrew or my whatever. And he says, tell me something. Why do you have a desire to be accessorized? I said, well, that's just a symbol to me. But it's not. I want to ask you a question since you asked me one. He said, what's your question? I said, why would an Indian immigrant to the United States raised in a different worldview now following Jesus be more concerned about Israel than you are? And nobody had ever asked him that question before. He said, why? I said, because we may believe different things. But what I believe tells me that when there is a second coming, my king will rule over Jerusalem. And I have a vested interest that it is still there. He said, I love your style. It's simple. It's non-threatening. Here's why. I've always decided that introducing irrelevant features doesn't matter. John Lennox, the great Christian apologist who's a scientist with three PhDs in mathematics, said, the good news is only good news if people think their lives are bad. Most of the people you and I engage with drive better cars than us, live in better houses than us. What are we saving them to or from? Second, not emphasizing the benefits. And this is vital. Most people are looking for hope because they're hopeless. Most people are looking for justice because they feel it's been denied. Most people are trying to overcome betrayal because they've all been betrayed. Most people are trying to find some amount of sanctity in their life to overcome doubt. All of the other worldviews out there posit deities that deal with issues, but not the fundamental. I love how G.K. Chesterton put it. G.K. Chesterton said, if you look at the worldview of the Judeo-Christian thought process, it starts with joy at the center and an outworking to conquer the sorrows. Every other worldview begins with sorrow at the center, whether it's karma, whether it's dukkha, and an outworking to find some joy. Emphasize the benefits of starting with joy, starting with wisdom, starting with that happiness, not leading with need and ignoring verbal cues. These are things we can probably deal with in the Q&A, but not leading with need. You know, someone asked me the other time, he says, uh, oh, we're going to have a Christmas party. You need to introduce people. You need to bring them here. And the natural tendency is to say, we're having a Christmas party. Why don't you come? We have a speaker. I remember I was asked to speak at a Christmas uh, event in Vizag. Some of the better ones I have done are the ones where Rajiv had asked me to speak at, where majority of the people do not know the story. And that's the beauty of it. Most of the times I don't lead with the need of what I know. I lead with the need of what will feed them. I remember this particular church in Vizag, what they did was they turned the church inside out. They still did it in a church. But the entrance to the church was made the stage. The parking lot was made the sanctuary. It was an evening event. There was traffic around and all of that other stuff. But a majority of the people would not have set foot in that church. Till they said, hey, just come here. And it was the same event. There were about 100 people there. About 95 of the people were looking for truth. I'll never forget a lady who was very highly placed within the revenue service got up to speak at the end. And she says, today is the first time I heard this message of truth linked to joy and happiness. 
And she says, I went to a Christian school. I thought it was interesting. And here's the last part before we'll turn it back over. I think my clock says about a minute 50 or something left in the time given to me. Ignoring verbal cues and signals. There is a tremendous hurt in this world when you're sitting, when you're talking, when you're standing, when you're chatting, especially during this COVID time. Uh, one of the things we were able to do is I remember some pastors calling me from India and saying, I don't know how we are locked down. I said, you're locked down. You're not locked out. You're locked down. You're not locked out. Maybe this is the time you go through the Rolodex in your phone that has over 500 names. And maybe of those 500 names, only 50 of them subscribe to what you subscribe to. And 450 of them are acquaintances from the world we work in. What is your purpose from the profit world you work in? What is your purpose? Your purpose is now to be the engaging voice of maturity, the voice of relevance, to reach out to them. So what I start doing, I've been doing this for six or seven years, so it was not new during the lockdown. I said, lockdown is fine. Don't be locked out. High tech is fine. Don't lose high touch. How do you stay engaged? Call. In the U.S., when this lockdown began, the technology companies increased the amount of data they were going to give to people because they felt that people would be streaming. They wanted to increase the amount of data that people had access to so that they could stay connected. They were surprised when the amount of call volume increased and the amount of voice data was more than used because people were now answering calls from people they would have never taken the call from before because they were sitting there idle. Ignore all the verbal cues and signals and start being, go use that Disney example. Uh, nobody remembers normal. Just pick up the phone and call someone who does not subscribe to what you subscribe to and say, hey, I was just thinking of you. Uh, we were praying as a family for you. Uh, so I just want to make sure that uh, everything is okay with you. I think uh, let me just close this off. Okay, so that was uh, my time. I just want to make sure I, I respect that. And this is the last quote I usually have. Uh, on, I mean, I have some school and believe in Billy Graham. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so that's uh, as a leader, I can't choose who follows me, but as a follower, I can always choose who leads me. Choose wisely. So with that, what I'll do is I'll stop the share and then uh, we can navigate back and uh, let, me, uh, let me know how I can serve you in the Q&A. Brother Emmanuel, back to you. Thank you for the Thank privilege. Thank you so much, uh, Krish. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm just waiting for questions to come in. But but I like your opening comments. Uh, uh, first and foremost is that truth is exclusive. I think what a powerful uh, idea. What a powerful idea. And and you know, and Jesus himself said, "I am the truth," and that's that whole exclusivity. Uh, and what an assurance for us. Then, you spoke about not to compare 
and not to compete. Uh, and this is a message, uh, Krish, which uh, I wish people in the New York Stock Exchange and the private equity guys understand. But to complete, right? And that's what it is to build an equitable, in a fair, and just world, right? I, I mean, I would just pause here. Uh, we, we've got well, uh, let me, uh, as you were speaking, something else jumped into my head, which I had written in the morning, but thanks for that cue, because this is probably more powerful, and I'm glad you brought it up. When we finish our journey, for those of us as believers, and we reach the golden shore, we all want the words, well done, not well tried. Right. That's complete. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, you know, I was looking at the seven words on the cross, and Jesus, you know, the sixth word says, it is finished. And it is, it is as a task. Whereas, uh, I think it was Bernard Shaw who said, I am finished on his last words. You know, what a, what a situation. I mean, you know, and then for each of us, who are here on earth today, it is not finished and complete the task. And that focus is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, and we are actually participating in a finished work. And that's <laughs> one of the other side tongue-in-cheek statements I make. Every day I meet well-meaning people starting new programs. And I'm saying, you know, he said it is finished. What are we starting? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we've got Marcia, uh, who said she's from Pune. And I got a little biased to Pune because I'm also from here. Uh, and uh, she liked the quote which I shared of you. And she says, can you please expand your first sure. statement? On 8 and 16 yeah. hours, I can see your question. Yeah. yeah, the quote is, for 8 hours of the day, you practice the skill that allows you to make a living. That's the job you do. Uh, but for the 16 hours of the day that is left, 8 and 16, 24, for 16 hours... First is anchored in skill. We need to have a skill to allow us to make a living. But without the will to shape a life, the skill is meaningless. In the sense that we cannot, uh, you know, I remember early in my career, I came back home once and I was exhausted. And my wife looked at me as she picked me up at the airport. In those days, you know, you couldn't leave your car or people were not driving me to the airport. So you'd be dropped off and picked up for e economic reasons. But when she came to pick me up, she says, can we go somewhere out to eat? And my initial reaction is this great martyr, Nathan's here, he knows what traveling is. You feel that you have given the world everything and you feel that which is familiar should, uh, should, should accept this great sacrifice you're making. So as I came to the car and she says, can we go out? I said, sweetheart, I just came from out. All I've done is eaten out. My thought was, why can't I just have a home-cooked meal? You're not sacrificing as much as I am because I'm the one on the road. Not realizing that she had spent the whole week knee-deep in diapers, taking care of the house, making sure the boy is clothed, fed, and uh, educated. And then it dawned on me. She also has an MBA. Her choice was to be a mommy. She's smarter than I'll ever be. Her choice was to be a mommy. So it was a very interesting thing. I realized that I was focusing on the skill that was elevating me to great success. I was not shaping the will that was more a bigger piece of life.
And that's important. So one of the things I started reversing is when people would say, where are you going? I would always say, I'm going home. I just have to stop off in Pittsburgh. <laughs> then home becomes the source of thing. And then I'm not traveling to, I'm traveling from. Hopefully that made sense. Wonderful, wonderful. I think it's also good you brought in this element of partnering and partnership in this response as well. I, I like that aspect. Uh, so so th that's wonderful. So here's Bharti Naidu who, who's asking, uh, uh, please emphasize in refusal and rejection the insight of inner circle. As many may feel refused, but is interpreted as rejection. A fantastic question, Bharti. Yeah, uh, thanks for that question, Bharti. Uh, the refusal and rejection, refusal, if I had to simplify it, it goes back to the skill and will. Refusal is only refusing your skill. Rejection is when you take it personally and you allow them to reject your will. This is why I added the component, a constructive critic will only refuse your skill and force you to learn new skills. So let's say this call is over and either Rajiv or Nathan or any of the folks I know will send me a text saying, hey, Krish, you spoke too fast in this one segment. You kind of blurred out. You ran between points. What they are doing is they are asking me to look at my skill set. But because I respect them and I know they will not destructively criticize me because they've been with me many, many times. I've been in their homes. I will take it as constructive criticism. That's skill. So the same thing is rejection is when you take it personally and say the next time they call, I'm not going to do it. They didn't like anything I do. It's always people saying this way. Rejection is when you take your toys and go home. Mm -hmm. So the way you flip that is you tell people, I'm only going to allow my inner circle's rejection to bother me. So now let's go further. Nathan would be part of that inner circle. I've been in his home many times. Uh, I've spoken at their prayer meetings. Let's say he came to me and he says, uh, I think you need to, um, there's something missing there. Now that I would take personally, but I would also take it as valid from a constructive critic. So rejection is always personal. Rejection forces you to change the very, maybe I'll add a different dimension to it. You can always change a condition by changing your skill. You can only change your will by changing your conviction. Wonderful. We've got one person, uh, Krish, perhaps just take a quick uh, uh, look, uh, uh, says that, could Mr. Dhanan please guide the listeners how to find their purpose and calling once again? Sure. And then other, other questions could be a follow-up, follow on that. Sure. Uh, purpose actually goes back to the, you know, you'll find purpose when you understand the difference between talent and strength. Talent is God-given, strength is man-manifested. Most people will go to their grave with their finest talent still within them because they hung around the wrong circles. What does that mean? When you want to find your purpose in life, your purpose has to be anchored in your talent, not your strength. So what is the difference? How do I know my talent and strength difference? If it is from God, you will go to sleep peacefully at night. <laughs> if it's not from God, you stay up all night convincing God to change his mind. <laughs> 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 and that doesn't work. So sometimes what happens is you have to realize what is your God-given talent? Now, here's another thing. When you know the talent is from God and you have slept peacefully, that's when the discomfort begins. 
success, and I'm going to give you a long definition. You can probably find it online somewhere. But success is not who you are in relation to others doing what you do. Success is not who you are in relation to others doing what you do. Success is going to where you think success is and hoping you get sucked in by sheer centripetal force, <laughs> which means when I wanted to be a communicator, which I believed was my talent, but I had it. I was a debater in India and everybody said, you have the gift of the gab. I went in for jobs trying to get into advertising. They said, no, you'd make a great salesman. What were they saying? You talk a good game. So if I talk a good game and want to make a living, will I hang around with people who talk a good game and want to make a living? Or do I go to people who are already talking as a game and making a good living? So I went to where Mr. Ziegler was and I decided that I would be on the outside hoping I'd get sucked in. First generation immigrant with thick accent and all of the other issues that go here and everybody here is a doctor, an engineer and I'm a lowly salesperson standing next to a person who was making $75,000 an hour for an hour talk. Man had written 29 books, never went to college. So my stereotype is busted. Here's a guy who never went to college making more money than the law allows, perfecting the craft that I want to do. So you stand there for that 10 years. And one day he rings and says, son, I can't make this engagement. I told the owners that I'm going to send you because I've raised you for 10 years. This is your moment. So that's success. Success is that uh, belief that you have the talent, but you're going to go to where it's going to be challenged. And that again, maybe goes away from, I told, I think someone posted this the other day on a message I had given. Mm -hmm. I said, if you're comfortable, you'll never be effective. Right. So hopefully that helped. Uh... Okay, there are two questions. I'm just combining them. Uh, so that you can answer. There are lots of other questions, but let's see this. Is Joseph, purpose-driven and goal-driven, is, is it one and the same or are they different? And then, you know, uh, our skill or will will make a living versus living. Okay. So I think uh, take the, the, the purpose-driven and goal-driven. Yeah, uh, that's a great, uh, that's a great uh, bifurcation. Everybody, ha let me actually back up. Everybody has goals. An alcoholic has goals. A bank robber has goals. A person who is just aimlessly drifting through life has a goal to aimlessly drift through life. A, a person who does not earn a living but believes that their relatives can take care of them because they have to or something like that, whatever the guilt trip is, everybody has goals. And goals take you through life. But purposeful living is having a goals program. Now, what is a goals program? A goals program is looking at that which you want to accomplish in the short term. Short term goals are under six months, putting some wins under your belt. I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I'm going to enroll in a college and get a community club, or I'm going to take a certification course. So if you want to get an education, you don't want to suddenly one day decide that you're going to go get a PhD if you've never had it. So you have short term goals. Then there are medium range goals, which will take between six months and two years. And then they are long range goals, which are out of sight, but not out of mind. So when I first got started, I, my goal was just to have one engagement. I said, let's have one engagement a month, which is still ambitious. 12 times a month speaking is quite ambitious when nobody knows who you are. So how do you, how do you perfect that? How do you set some goals? I said, first go to places where people 
think you're more qualified. Very important distinction. Most of the times when we want to achieve something, we want to achieve it in a place where people are as qualified than us or more qualified than us because that's ambition. But what about reversing the, stat, the, the position and going back to a place where people are less qualified than you so that you can pour into them? And as a result of that, the next time you go there, you have to learn more. So I started a Toastmasters club in a prison in Mansfield, Texas, and drove one way 60 miles every six weeks to talk to inmates in a prison. Why? They have a seventh grade education. Maybe I was not good enough for IBM at that time but I was good enough for a seventh grader. I'm smarter than them. So that's the thing. Now here's the principle. Don't always look at the mountaintop where your promise lies and expect a mountaintop experience. Sometimes look back to where you came from and find people less qualified than you and bring them to where you are. And on their shoulder, they will take you to the mountaintop. That's purpose. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, so there's another question which has uh, been, you know, seconded by others also. And coincidentally, this is uh, from a person from Vizag, uh, Nicodemus Samuel. He says, I really like the ex exhortation to ch challenge assumptions. I think that is really relevant and important. However, in the Indian context, challenging assumptions is viewed with a lot of suspicion because our society is steeped in tradition. Would like your views on how we specifically deal with this aspect. Very interesting, considering your name is Nicodemus. <laughs> <laughs> the whole Bible is built on the premise of being born again, and that was the dude who had to go back and understand it. So, I mean, funny you bring that up, but I think this is a Holy Spirit moment to reveal to us that there's not one of us in this room smarter than all of us put together. But the perspective of that component of... Uh, Challenging assumptions is very vital. I'll give you a reverse methodology and maybe answer your question. I remember when I first heard this principle, I had also read the book by uh, Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, Carnegie's book revolutionized a lot of thought processes at that time. How to Win Friends and Influence People and then The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. Now, in Carnegie's book, he said, the thing that is most important to someone on this planet is their name. Even our Lord, when they said, good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? So the nomenclature associated to us is very vital. So when he says the best way to influence people is use their name. So in a corporate setting, what I tell people is I always try to be familiar, not friendly. And in order to be familiar, not friendly, you maybe mention a person's name three times in an interaction. So I said, let me try it out in the very land in which I was born. Now, I come from a Brahmin family, become a Christian. My father, when I told him I'd become a Christian, called me a curse on the family. So, you know, we're already dealing with the stigma. But I don't care about what people think. I care about how I want them to think. Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> I don't care what people think. I care about how I want them to think. Am I going to be a change agent and impact this moment, or are we just going to breathe air and make it useless? So my dad and I go to a restaurant and there's a young man there. And when he came to take our order, I said, what's your name? And he said, sir, Ramesh. And uh, three times during the conversation, I called him by his name. And when we finished, I stood up and I put my arm around him and I said, Ramesh, thank you so much for adding to our environment. You're, you're, you're good at what you do. I appreciate it. I said it in Telugu. 
my dad was flabbergasted. He says, we don't know who he is. We don't know his background. We don't know his job or whatever. And he says, how can you put your armor on him? I said, he's part of the human race. Are you telling me there's something more profound than that? And my dad said, I don't want to argue with you. You always have too many words. <laughs> but when we got to the car, here comes Ramesh running with tears in his eyes. He said, sir, I've been a waiter for 10 years. I've been in this restaurant for five. You're the first person who asked me my name and then referenced me. You made my day. Here's the principle. To a person, the sweetest. See, some mother gave that boy a name. He's not, a hey, Suno, come here, yeah, what all the stuff we do. They're not objects. That's what I mean by making sure you exercise and change that perception of how people view it. Just try it. Try it. In fact, one of the things they would tell me when I started customer service training was the word TIP, T-I-P-S, stands for to ensure prompt service. So when I come to an Indian hotel and stay there and I'm going to be in that hotel for five days and because of traffic, we try to have all our meetings at the same place in the morning before I go to the next city. When I go down to the restaurant area, I'll ask the guy, I said, who's going to be on the day shift uh, for breakfast the next five days? And some guy will say, I'll be here, sir. I'll give him some money in advance and say, I have many people coming in here. We'll always be meeting here. Make sure the coffee cup is always filled. Be familiar, not friendly. I'll ask him a little bit about his life. And over the course of the week, we become friends. Now, I stay in the same hotels in all these cities every time I go. And you'll be surprised how many people stumble over themselves to come serve me. Why? It's not about their service. It's how I want them to think about what they do. So that's the, hopefully that helped. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Here's a question which came privately to me, and I think it's important uh, we look at it. Uh, this is my impression that secular economic model is driving Christian ministries. Is there an economic model exclusively in biblical ways? Of course, we have a choice oh, yeah. to have a second webinar with you on this, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can. Uh, the, the seven mountains of influence, actually, you know, we have kingdom building business models and Nathan would have some effect on, on those things. Yes, the answer in a short form is yes. But here's the principle. I always will not give you a, a, quantitative, a qualitative without a quantitative. With integrity, you have nothing to fear because you have nothing to hide. Second, you cannot make a good deal with a bad person. You may be good, but don't try to engage with someone just because you're good, because it's the rite of passage. The very first Psalm says that. Don't associate with the ungodly. Now, how does that help us in a secular environment? The line between secular and sacred is not as wide as we profess it to be. Every company I work for practices the Ten Commandments. Try killing someone on the job and see how long you last. <laughs> <laughs> try stealing a little bit and see how long that works. We don't call it that, but almost everyone has some guidance that comes out of those commandments. My awareness to it is just that. Now, here's the, here's the thing. There are some things I won't do. Uh, I will not, uh, I was invited to speak. Uh, if I'm invited to speak somewhere and they're serving alcohol, uh, they can serve alcohol at other times. It's their problem. It's not mine. But if they're serving alcohol right at, right before my presentation, nine times out of ten, if I know about it, I won't. Here's why. I don't want an inebriated crowd to hear anything from me. It's not even worth my time because that's just wasted words. 
So there are some principles. Uh, I don't go out to lunch with a woman who is not my wife, no matter how high she is in business, unless someone else is present. And if the push comes to shove, I remember one time I had to take an airline executive out. I made, gave it, I, I called my office. Nobody was available. And I called my wife and I said, sweetheart, from 2 o'clock to 2.45 on this day in this restaurant, I'm going to be there. Can you come and join us? She said, why? I said, I just don't. She said, I, I, I trust you. We've been married 35 years. I said, I don't want anybody seeing that to even for a second think that there may be something wrong. The thought is more important. And sometimes that's how business needs to work. You can make a good deal with a bad person. But if you're going to do it, make sure you have some standards that are non-negotiable. And this will give you three things. You'll win some, you'll lose some, and some will be a draw. Fantastic. I think it's nice to have simple, simple and non-negotiable things, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I think, a moral compass as well. Okay. Uh, there's one from Patricia Klassen. Uh, I like I like one. Uh, the best comment came from Joy. She said, I miss most of it. And uh, she said, I miss most of the conversation. So you're probably one of the privileged mm -hmm. ones. Everybody else got bored listening to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, Joyce. No, but thanks for that. I guess I'm pretty sure they're recording it. So Joyce, they'll send you the link. I'm just kidding. So. She's, she's, she's a great colleague and wonderful uh, Yeah, Dr. Ramesh Richard, one day we were at an event, tongue in cheek, and uh, I was in the front row and someone in the back row said, we can't hear you. He says, you might want to change with the people in the front row. They can. <laughs> <laughs> so. We got Patricia Klassen. I don't know where you're from, but she asks a question or a statement: "Our skill or our will, making a living versus living." So your comments, Krish. Uh, uh, oh, making a living versus living. Now here's the thing. Um, maybe I'll use an illustration from Mother Teresa. I had the privilege of meeting her in 1994, taking a donation. I'd asked her a question. And the question was, what is success? I mean, I just wanted to know early in my career something very simple like, you know, what, what, what makes someone like her tick? I was making a living. She was living. Mm -hmm. She was making a difference. Now, the difference is what she said. She said, unless you know how much is enough, no matter what you get, it'll never be enough. Billy Graham decided how much that money was he would get from when he was in Minneapolis, and that's the same amount they gave him throughout. A lot of his needs were taken care of as he got older, but that's how Billy Graham was voted one of the top 10 most influential people in the world for 50 consecutive years. <laughs> Others have made the list every so often, but to do it for 50 consecutive years, to be in the top 10 most admired people in the world means he was living. Living is non-negotiable. Living is when you don't think life is a popularity contest. Living is when you realize that other people can tell you what you can or cannot be, but only you can fulfill it. That's what Eleanor Roosevelt said. So I think most, and Carl Bart put it this way, none of us can go back and make a brand new beginning, but all of us can start now and make a fantastic ending. Yeah. None of us know how much life we have left, but all, all of us can decide how much living we want to do in that life. 
Thank you, Krish. I think we take this to be more as the last question. And dilemma question. And uh, and I suppose also, you know, if you're uh, taking any consultancy, this gentleman can pay your consultancy for the response you give. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as we tell, as we tell people, and that's why every note says, "In God we trust." <laughs> can I be a good Christian and still be a person who can push people to buy higher-end products, even though it's okay to use a mid-range product? I mean, he's got to listen to the tell and sell kind of a thing and benefits and features. Uh, I mean, but, here's but, the thing. But, but go for it. Yeah. Uh, selling is not what you do to someone. It's what you do for someone. So let's say you are selling a higher-end product. I've always sold higher-end products, and that's the difference between a Mercedes and a Yugo. Some people will buy them. Here's the principle. The principle is no matter what you sell is your value proposition indelibly printed that you know that they're getting more than you are. How do you understand that? When I sell something, I ask myself, I got a commission, they got a product. Five years from now, are they still enjoying the benefit of their product long after I've spent my commission? Which means, did they get the better deal? They can buy something less. That's their privilege. It's their prerogative. But if you're selling an airplane and you're wondering if they can get by in a car, of course they can get by in a car, but you're in the airplane business. So you always sell based on the value proposition and indelibly do you believe that within the confines of what you offer, however you offer it, you they are getting the better deal. Now, here's the statement that Neiman Marcus once made who sold high-end stuff. He was a Dallas retail giant. Neiman Marcus said this, a sale is never complete till a product or service never returns for being faulty, but a customer does and brings someone else who wants the same benefit. Wonderful. So we are more or less uh, there with all the questions. And uh, maybe a last question is uh, from my side. What, what keeps you ticking and what keeps you going, Krish? Um, invitations. One day they'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one day someone will say, hey, you know what? We've got a younger guy. He just went to America and he went with $6 in my pocket. Here's how I learned this thing. I have a friend by the name of John Foppy. John was born without arms. He has one thumb on his shoulder that can hold an envelope. I asked John, I said, what keeps you motivated? You don't have arms and you're so excited about life. He wrote a book called Armed with Hope. He recorded a series called Stepping into Life. He drives a car with his feet. He's an award-winning painter. Brilliant guy. Uh, wears his wedding ring on his toe. Uh, got a beautiful child. I said, John, what keeps you ticking? He says, one day someone will come along without arms and legs and the world will forget me. And sure enough, Nick Wojcik came along and Nick Wojcik doesn't have arms and legs. And John had to find something else to do because what happens is there'll always be someone better that God has prepared for that moment. But till he does, one day he'll call me home. And till he does, I want to, I want to live my life with the principle that when I get to the other side and he says, what did you do with my name? I said, I gave it away. Let's take a last question. I think I missed this. It's a good one. And still, you know, audience is all here. Uh, 
uh, Marshall asks, so how do you mix evangelism with being a speaker of transformation? This could be our last question. Sure. Um, for me, evangelism is part of who I am. But for many years, my business card said corporate evangelist business philosopher. Everybody wants ethos. Everybody wants pathos. Everybody wants logos. Logos is the power of words. Uh, pathos, the relationship. Ethos, the, the ethics that govern us. Um, Mr. Ziegler put it this way. He said, everybody in this world is looking for the same eight things. To be happy. To be healthy. To be reasonably prosperous. To have friends. Security. Peace of mind. Good family relationships. And hope. Now, I challenge you to find something, and you can go online and type in Mr. Zig Ziglar's eight from see you at the top, happy, healthy, whatever. He says that if everybody wants the same thing wherever they are on planet Earth, and the only place you can find all eight is in Holy Writ, every other worldview will give you one or two, but none will give you all. Um, Ravi used to put it this way. He says, origin, morality, purpose, destiny. What am I doing? How well am I doing it? Is there a right and a wrong? Where am I going? Now, competing worldviews will offer you some of that, but the totality of what humanity wants is only offered in the good news. And so when you come at it from a philosophical nature and not an evangelical or a theological nature, which is the goal is not just directly to get to you need Christ, but the way of his life, the way of understanding betrayal, the way of all of those things, the philosophical thing, it no longer is evangelism. You are a moral philosopher sharing your faith and defending it with right criteria. So that's how I do it.